It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Here in the seventh inning, the Yankees are trailing 2 nothing. That is the key man. Hit high in the air to left field. Going to the corner, Yaspinski. It's over the wall. It's a home run for Bucky Dent. Yankees get the lead 3-2. Deep to left, Yastrzemski will not get it, it's a home run! A three-run home run for Bucky Dent, the Yankees now lead it by a score of three to two. Boy, the last guy on the ball club, you'd expect to hit a home run, just hit one into the screen, Bucky Dent. Hello and welcome to the newest episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. I'm John Schwartz, I'm the deputy editor of Yankees Magazine. With me, you know, and I really shouldn't say with me. We're all socially distant and coming to you from our own places right here. But we have our editor-in-chief, Al Sanasiri. Hello. Hey there, Al. But much, much, much more importantly than either of us, we have the star of our show, Bucky Dent. How are we doing? We're doing good, Bucky. And joining us today from, I believe, San Diego, correct, David? That is correct. We have David Wells. First off, thank you so much for joining us on this episode here and uh, working with us as we kind of try to figure out some of this technology. But it's so great to have the two of you on the line together. You know, this is kind of what we were hoping to do all along, you know, and with you two in particular, one of the things I love about having you both here is, I mean, are there two players that you can more immediately go to just like this unbelievable memory in your head that you can see so clearly than Bucky Dent and David Wells? I mean, what could be better than this? Doesn't get any better than that, man. I tell you what, uh, I always love being around David, especially down at fantasy camp. You know, we'd sit in the locker room and be having a beer and just talking baseball and, uh, you know, hearing his stories and, you know, about his career. It was, it was a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing this interview and hearing, hearing some more of those great stories and about your career. So, you know, I, I think where we need to start, obviously, as every single thing that's happening right now is just, you know, a little bit of a, a word about what's going on right now. You know, David, uh, from out in California, why don't you tell us what you're seeing with everything that's happening, or I guess not seeing, if, if, if uh, you're in, indoors? <laughs> well, I'm seeing a lot of news watching, you know, Fox and flipping through the channels, obviously playing the social distancing game. I haven't left my house in nine days. Who would have ever thought that this would ever happen to us, you know, to the world especially. And, uh, you know, you feel for these people who, who are losing rapidly through this pandemic. You just try to stay sane. Uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are doing their chores and projects around their house, but, you know, and then on the flip side, I know everyone's missing baseball right now because, you know, because of this pandemic, but, uh, you know, we're just trying to do the best we can stay safe and, you know, try to avoid this, uh, this nasty disease. Well, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll add something here. You know, I talked to both of you guys, Bucky and David, you know, once over the weekend and, and David on Monday. And I thought it was kind of funny that I asked both of you guys what you were doing in the last couple of days. And, you, you know, without knowing that each other said this to me, you both were doing the exact same thing, which was, you know, cleaning out memorabilia in your garages and, and things like that. Um, so obviously I guess it's a time to catch up on, on things like that. I also think it's interesting that MLB network, for instance, spent a lot of time showing the famous Bucky Dent home run against the Red Sox. What did you guys think about kind of seeing some of these great things from, you know, baseball archives and from the vault, so to speak, kind of getting brought back into play a little bit more and, and getting a little bit more attention and, you know, giving fans kind of a, you know, a little bit of a time to kind of recollect about some favorite memories, which obviously both of you guys have, have such a big part of. It's, it's always great, you know, to 
to look back on on one of the greatest games ever played that that was a 78 game you know and uh you know they ran it two or three times and like i told everybody i always get sweaty palms i even know the outcome but you know i mean it's still one of the great games and seeing the great plays you know Pinella made and the matchups between you know gidry and Jastrzemski and gossage at the end of the game you know when he came in the seventh and pitched the last three innings and and hearing the stories you know uh, i was with gooths you know down in spring training we did that rivalry show and hearing him Talk about, you know, the last out, you know, what he had dreamed the night before, you know, came true where he thought the game was going to come down to him and Yastrzemski, and that happened. So it's always great to see the other games, too, you know, some of the games you kind of forget about. But, yeah, it's 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 always wonderful to see those games. You know, I, I remember watching Bucky hit that home run. You know, I was in 1970. I was here in San Diego, you know, as a kid in, uh, in junior high school. You know, being a Yankee fan in San Diego, you know, the Padres were my team here and the Yankees were my team in the American League. You know, to me, it was dreaming about being in that big moment like Bucky did in, uh, at Fenway. And that's just a kid's dream, you know, for me. And then all of a sudden I get my opportunity to play in the big leagues, come to New York and have a perfect game. But, you know, on the flip side, Yes does such a great job on putting all these memorable games and and moments on TV for people to, especially the Yankee fans. Even if you're not a fan of the Yankees, it's still pretty cool to watch because everyone gets kind of pulled into it because it was such a dynasty. Mr. Steinbrenner wanted to win, and he put the best out there. Uh, but, you know, you're not going to win every year, but you can create moments, and that's one thing that the Yes Network catches and they and they rerun it and they put it on there so it's kind of cool to watch it from retirement bucky's we've been retired a lot longer than i have but you know you do get those chills you know i've I've watched it now a couple times you know the perfect game and you can't help but get chills you can't help but you know smile because even though you know the outcome of it it's still pretty intense so one of the things that I absolutely love about the idea of having you two here together is one of the, one of the main goals for me with, you know, deep to left with Bucky Dent is it's very easy to pigeonhole Bucky into, you know, one at bat in a in, in, a, in a long baseball life and a long even non-baseball life. David, similarly, you have, you know, World Series rings. You have a lot of great memories from your time there. What would you say is the breakdown between when people are chatting baseball with you, whether it's about, you know, that one May day versus the other 16 years? People love stories. I mean, you know, like, like Bucky said, when we're down in fantasy camp, we're in the clubhouse and we're cutting up on one another. That's the most important thing, I think, when you go to the ballpark is seeing your teammates, your friends, and and that camaraderie and and just all the bs that comes with it which is awesome because you you miss that locker room talk and that's what people want to talk about they 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 know a lot of the game they always ask you hey what was jeter like what was bernie williams like what was david Cohn like to me those stories are great but they want to hear you know people like that they want to go deeper and and that's pretty cool because you know being a yankee and old timers day you know i and I have Moose Scourin, Hank Bauer, Whitey Ford, Ron Guidry sitting in front of my locker and getting to hear their stories was above and beyond what I can ever imagine. And, and just to pick their brains about that time. And, and I remember Hank used to always say, wow, Dave, you're one of us. You should have played back in the 60s with us. You would have fit right in. And, you know, and that made me feel great because of the fact that I wish I did play in the 60s and 70s with, with those guys and Gator and Bucky because of the fact that I like their stories better than I like my stories because there was no social media and, and there wasn't a whole lot when we were there, but we were more under the microscope because we had a ton of reporters constantly following us, uh, constantly there. But you know, the, the 60s and 70s, man, that was some free will stuff. And that's what I like because you didn't have to worry about it. And your teammates always had your back. And, you know, we were nightlife guys. We were always out, you know, Goose, he was out there. And, and the Goose stories that Goose tells are, are phenomenal. But if you ever wanted to hear great stories, if you could, if you had the opportunity to listen to Mickey Rivers and Oscar Gamble, let me tell you something. Those two together should have had their own show for years because it was Unbelievable. And Bucky and I still laugh at, you know, when we're down there in fantasy camp, we still laugh at some of the stories that they say and just, you know, the expression on their faces and, and just in their own lingo. 
they've got their own lingo and that's what's good about their stories. So people around, whether it's Bucky, me or anybody else, those stories they want and, you know, and we can provide them as long as, long as it's a good setting and, and, and we're in a, mind, in a good mindset, we don't mind chirping at all. Especially like at old timers day when those, when those guys, you know, when I first came over in 77, I was in the clubhouse when all those guys started coming in, you know, it's when Mantle and Maris and, you know, Yogi and uh, Cleet Boyer and Tom Tresh and Bobby Richardson. And, and one of my favorite was Moose Gowern. I used to love to hear him tell stories. I mean, he could go back and tell you what happened in game six of such and such a World Series. And, you know, those are the things that were just so memorable about talking to old guys. And, you know, but talking about the teams that you played on, you played with some great, great players also. You know, I played on some... You know, when I was there in, in the 70s, and of course you played on some great teams that started in, you know, in 96 when you guys, you know, when, well, you weren't there in 96, but they started in 96 when they beat me in Texas. But 98, I thought Texas had one of the, you know, we had one of our better teams, and you pitched game one against us against Stottlemyre. You went eight, and he went eight, and you wound up beating us two to nothing. But, you know, 96 was the start of those great teams, and you played with some great players also. That's the thing. You, you, when you get, on a team that has great players. And and I remember that pitching that, that first game against Texas. And to me, as a pitcher, I I shine. I wanted to pitch against the best players, the best hitters, you know, that, that was my model. And, and I'll tell you what, that, that was a stacked team that you guys had there in Texas. But when you're in Yankee stadium, I don't know those, those baseball gods, they shine. I was made and built to play in New York because of the fact that I grew up a Yankee fan you know, from San Diego, I always wanted to be on the big stage. And then when you get your opportunity and you shine and those fans get behind you, that's, that was, that was awesome. Cause when they get there and they chant and you got two strikes and the whole stadium standing up, you know, to me, that's, that's something that you want. But you know, the team that we had one through nine was an all-star. It was, it was incredible that we had. So if we, if we lost, you know, that was our own fault because we were just stacked our pitching staff, our bullpen, you know, we had great coaches on the bench that to mentor us and stuff like that. So to me, it was just as, as a whole, it was it was it was pretty awesome to be on a team like that. You know, I played them with the Tigers in 93, four and five. And, you know, it was some hardship teams because, you know, we didn't have the pitching that we had in New York. We didn't have we had a few guys there. we had big name guys, but a lot of them were on the tail end. You know, Whitaker and Trammell were awesome. Gibby was awesome, but he was towards the end of his career. But, you know, to play with these greats and then have those stories, I mean, at the end of the day, the best teams are going to be in the World Series. And being in New York, we always have that opportunity. And really, you never know when you're going to go back to a World Series. You know, my last one was in 81, and I didn't get a chance to play with it. So, you know, in, in, in 96, you know, when we played the Yankees, we beat them in game one, and we lost nine straight after that, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, I don't, I don't, am I ever going to get a chance to go back to the World Series? These guys keep beating us every year, you know, so I, I kind of knew what it felt like to be on the, be on the other, other side, you know, but, uh, you know, th- those teams were awesome, and, and I, I thought we matched up great with Tex- with the Yankees, but our bullpen wasn't, wasn't even close to your bullpen. I mean, you guys just shut us down completely. You know, and that and that's the key because we we had depth, but then you had seven. You didn't have Goose for three innings. You had you had Graham Lloyd, you had Dozer, you had Nelly, you had Stanton, and then you had Mo. <laughs> so you know the matchups were there, and you know I'm probably missing a couple guys out of there, but it, it's just something to me that when you when you have that as a pitcher, you know you're going to get some run support. You just go out and do your job. You know you can give up four runs and still win a ball game with that offense we had and then and the tail end of the you know the pitching in the bullpen they were going they were going to hold it for you and in 90 98 99% of the time they did you know the other thing i was going to bring up is david when you talk and, and i'll ask both of you guys that looking at that 98 team you know david you obviously started game 1 and pitched so well but then you know bucky looking at who you guys had to face just in terms of their starting rotation after david wells was andy pettit David Cohn, and then if you got to a fourth game, Orlando Hernandez. I, you know, how challenging is that for, just from a psychological standpoint to see one starting pitcher after another with that type of postseason pedigree and, and, and type of ability? Well, you know you're in for you know a, a tough series, but we thought 
our offense, because Texas always had guys that could hit. I mean, we, we had a lineup that, that could really hit the ball. But, uh, you know, when you're talking about facing those, those guys, you're not going to score a whole lot of runs. I don't care what kind of offense. You know, those guys going out there, you know, one, two, three, and four. But, you know, we still thought we could match up and, and, and win, you know, the series. But, like I said, we won the first game in 96, and we didn't win another game after that. So that told you – you know, how good the Yankees were at that time. You know, David, you talk about, first off, you talk about bullpens. You're also talking about the way you were able to bring yourself up, you know, for the biggest opponents. The funny thing about baseball that I love so much is that perfect game, that 1998 perfect game, that's not my favorite game I watched you pitch. My favorite game that I watched you pitch is a game that no one had any reason to be watching or remember. I I mean, I'm wondering if you're even going to remember this game. It was 2001, an April game at Detroit. So the 2001 Tigers, obviously not a good team. You're pitching for the White Sox. It's a Friday night, I believe. You pitched a complete game, 100 pitches, 81 strikes, 27 looking. I've never seen anything like that. And obviously it wasn't a perfect game. I mean, it wasn't that moment. And, you know, I, I don't know if it was on SportsCenter that night as a big deal. But I just remember sitting there and watching this thing and just watching a pitcher who had literally the other team just wrapped up in a ball, like could not do anything. And again, that's what I love about this sport. Bucky, you too, you know, yeah, there are these moments, there are these singular moments. But for some reason for me, I hold on to that game that you pitched more than the perfect game. When, when you're out there and Sparky Anderson was the greatest manager I ever played for. He was a friend. He was uh, a psychiatrist. He was everything to me. And he just, he told me when I got there in 93, he goes, you're going to be my number five starter, you know, because I got released by the Blue Jays in like a week to go in spring training. And so he's your, he goes, you're my number five guy, but here's the deal. He goes, you don't want to put your infielders and you don't want to put your outfielders to sleep. He goes, you go out there, you get the ball and you go at it. You know, you don't, you don't let these guys breathe. And, you know, and that's speeding the game up is basically what he was telling me. But, you know, you had to know when to slow the game down and speed it up. And to me, when you get up there, and, and my thing was with Manny Ramirez, you know, as good as the hitters he was, he liked to get in there, get his feet set, and, and I knew that, so I would always quick pitch him. You know, I'd make him call timeout, so I was trying to get into his head, you know, and all that, but that that's kind of thing that you do. If you get the ball, you're grooving, don't let the other guys breathe. Don't let these guys get set. You come in there, you got to move a guy's feet occasionally. You move their feet, but you get in there and you throw strikes, and, and Bucky can contest because when I went, when I was on the mound, I didn't screw around. I threw strikes. I didn't walk anybody. So I threw strikes and, you know, I'd rather have, I'd rather put the ball in play. I didn't care about strikeouts. I wanted to get out of that inning and get on the bench, get a breather and get some runs. I wanted to win. That's how you pitch games like that is by getting in a groove. You know, once you have your mojo, you go at it and, and, and you, you're going to get, you look at Greg Maddox, look at, at, uh, at Glavin, you know, look at those guys, look at the games that they pitched that were, under 100 pitches, hour and 20, hour and 30. Jim Cott, you know, he was the king of under two hours because he wanted to get to the dance floor that night. (laughs) Well, I played behind him, and I played behind some guys, and you're absolutely right, Boomer, is the the fact that when guys get on the mound and they're going after hitters and they're throwing strikes – you know, you're you're on your toes, you're into the game, you know, the game's moving along and, you know, playing behind guys like Catfish and, and Guidry and, uh, like you said, Jim Cott, man, those guys got the ball and came right after you. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. What do you see different in today's pitching? I mean, it, it's more, they want to strike guys out. They want to throw the ball hard. And, you know, you were a guy that pitched 21 years and you pitched a lot of innings. And you threw strikes. And what do you see is the big difference in today's pitching? I, I just see guys nibbling. To me, it's, it's hard to watch, Bucky. It really is nowadays because, you know, you, you see a guy. I, I never, unless it was a Mo Vaughn who owned me or somebody that on that other side that's going to beat you and, and, and managers always says, don't let that guy beat you. Ken Griffey Jr., Sparky would always say, don't let this guy beat you. There's always a guy or two in that lineup that's going to that's gonna beat you. Don't let him do it. So to me, unless it was those guys, I would never throw a 3-2 slider. I would never throw a 3-2 changeup. I hated to walk guys, so that's why I always challenge. And, you know, you see these guys that are stud pitchers. 
have a ton of walks. They don't challenge anybody. And not to say now the game has changed with the uh, Saber metric system came in and now the analytics of the game. Now, you know, the umpires, obviously, back in your day and part of my day, they've they've tightened the zone up now. I mean, you get King Kaiser out there who, who was tight as a drum, and then you had John Hirschback who favored the pitchers. So you just had to know who was umpiring for one thing and then, and just go with it and try not to piss them off and go out there. But these guys today, <laughs> they've got such good ability and talent, but you're not going to see the 60s or the early on. You look at maybe 2000, mid-2000, 2005, 2006 is when the game started changing a little bit. And, you know, you're not going to see these complete games. You don't give these guys opportunity. You don't get that grit. And that's the thing these guys don't have. They don't have that grit. All they know is they got to go five innings as hard as they can, 100 pitches, you're out. And there's some guys out there that are studs. Don't get me wrong. And I love some of these matchups, but sometimes you just got to strap it on, go, and, and don't let – because Sparky Anderson always said, if you look in this dugout and you look for help, I'm coming to get you, and you might be in double A by the end of the game. <laughs> if that doesn't tell you something, I don't know what does. <laughs> That's what Goose said uh, last time I talked to him. Uh, and we were joking around, and Tiant was saying that, you know, he pitched 15 innings one night uh, uh, against Marischal or somebody. And, uh, you know, I said, well, you'll never see that again. And then Goose said, you know, back in the old days, you know, we keep talking a little bit about the old days. He said, you know, the manager tell me, you go get on the mound and I'll come get you when you get tired. He says, but don't be looking in the dugout. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. Guys are looking in the dugout nowadays. But, you know, but the game, you know, it's it's still, to me, yeah, the game has changed. The money is obviously unbelievable. Can you imagine, Bucky, making the money now that, back then? <laughs> oh, my God. It's it's it, it's absolutely amazing. But, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you. You know, and, and you're a teacher. You know, you, you coach high school baseball. But even my last year's coaching, you know, before I actually retired – there were certain things that over the course of my career that I taught and that I'd learned that you couldn't teach anymore because you were afraid of getting a guy hurt. There's a lot of things that, that we learned about playing defense to get out of the way of a, of a, a runner sliding in the second. Well, they don't have to teach that anymore because guys slide at the bag. So a lot of the teaching methods that as an infield coach that I taught I didn't have to teach later on. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of things. Now, you, you coached high school baseball. And what was your philosophy with your young pitchers? I know there's a lot of, you know, travel ball kids, you know, that, you know, they're on pitch counts when they're young and this and that and the other. What was your philosophy as far as teaching young pitchers in high school? Uh, you know what, Bucky? I, I kept it simple. You know, I kept it the way I was, I was taught in the game. You go after pitchers because, you know, in high school, they nibble, they throw. The coach that was there before me, he had a guy calling the pitches. And he's always called 3-2 curveballs. And I said, that's the lowest percentage pitch in the game is a 3-2 curveball, especially in high school. So when I took over, I, I, I had these guys throwing their bullpens, long toss every day. Every day they long toss. They do the shoulder exercises. They do their running. Everything that we did when, when I came up through the minor league system. And then when the game situation, I said, you're going to challenge these guys. You're going to put the ball in play. Because a lot of these guys, they're not going to knock the bat out of your hands. So pitch to contact. But you're going to learn how to pitch in. You're going to learn how to pitch away. You're going to learn how to pitch up. And to me, if you can use all those dynamics, you're going to be good. And, and these kids, they bought into it. And I told him, I said, I'm going to give you two walks per game, my starting pitchers. I said, after two walks, you're out of the game because I taught him how to pitch. So I wanted him to throw strikes. Three years ago, the year before I, I stepped down, I think I had like 15 or 18 complete games. One of them was over 100 pitches, but I monitor them, you know, because obviously you look at the swings, they're laboring and all that. A lot of them were foul balls or, or stuff like that. And then my ERA was like a 1-2 almost like a Bob Gibson number, but that was the efficiency of pitching from starting pitching to bullpen guys. What was your off season program? Because, you know, you, 
You're, you're one of the great success stories coming off Tommy John surgery. Going back and looking and seeing that you, you know, had Tommy John surgery and you came back after that and, and pitched as long as you did. What did you do and what do you tell guys? What would you tell a guy like Severino or Montgomery today who's coming off Tommy John surgeries as far as your philosophy on your workout, what you did and, and how you trained yourself to pitch as long as you did in the big leagues? I mean, 22 years after Tommy John surgery, man, that's a long time. You were doing something right. No, it was. I mean, obviously, genetics has a little bit to do with it. But I was a skinny. I was a skinny little kid. I mean, a buck, what seventy five when I came out of high school. Wow! Wild, throw, throwing nine, <laughs> throwing ninety six miles an hour in high school at a buck seventy five. You know, it was like, you know, who is this guy? But then two years after high school, when I snapped my elbow and and double A, you know, to me it was. I came back. I rehabbed without getting a surgery spring training i threw my first curveball i snapped it again so i went through that procedure twice and it didn't feel good and then i had the surgery and then i i rehabbed it and i came back but you know what i did by well as soon as i was able you know i was crawling up the wall with my fingers you know stretching doing all that kind of stuff i got in the water i would get on my longboard because i was a surfer i grew up surfing so I get on my surfboard, I grab a longboard and I would go into the bay, Mission Bay, and I would I would paddle. I would paddle just to get the resistance in the water. And then, you know, once I did that, I built it up, then, you know, I would go into the basketball gym and then I would do, you know, at the free throw line, the line before the free throw, and I would just shoot the ball to get extension, just to where it was comfortable where I could do it, and then I would move back to the free throw line, I'd move back to the top of the key. You know, just to get the extension. And most guys, when they have Tommy John, if you saw Dwayne Ward, you see his elbow. He was he couldn't straighten it out. So you always right. wanted to do that. So I swam a lot. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I would run in the sand with a buddy of mine. You know, he was an older gentleman. I'd play basketball at, at the gym with all these. You know, with the with the everyday crew. Because when you grow, when you go, when you live in Ocean Beach, California, everyone called Ocean Beach is the job without the J. You still got OB. <laughs> so it was just all these guys that played basketball every day at one to three. And uh, so my buddy Ed, he was a runner. I would go run with him every Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the sand, barefooted for two miles. And that's how I built up my legs, you know, and then I would swim a mile after every time I would swim in the ocean. But then I surfed. If the surf was good, I'd go surfing. So I would tell guys, you know, after, you know, high school kids, they had surgery or guys in, in the minor leagues, big leagues, get in the water, swim, because you're using every muscle in your body. We didn't have the weights, Boggy. We didn't have that kind of, we didn't have the technology today, but there's no scientific evidence that when a guy's going to blow out, they can't tell you when you're going to blow out. They can do MRIs and stuff and see that, but look at the guys way before me, before you, who had injuries but still played. Look at Frank Tanana. He went from throwing 98 to... 78 and was still successful i played with him back in texas when he went through that you know yeah. he was still he was still a guy that knew how to pitch i mean you know from like you said throwing hard to to now learning how to get people out with not as good as stuff so i mean but today i don't i don't think guys like that would even have a chance if they're not throwing you know 95 96 miles an hour do you no no doubt and then you know even in high school even when i came out of high school you know, they were looking for guys throwing 90 plus, you know, and six foot and over. If you were under six foot, you didn't have a chance of playing. You were an outfielder or anything, but they wanted you over six foot. It was weird because I had a guy on my team, my high school team, Dave Camara. He ended up signing a year later. He went to community college and then he signed with the Braves on the minor league. And I think he was Urban Meyer's roommate, to be honest with you, because I think he played with the Braves. He was the best athlete I've ever seen come out of San Diego besides, you know, and I, I never saw Ted Williams, but this dude could play a five-tool player, but he was, he, he was just right at the six foot, a little bit under and, you know, but they just kind of, they overlook stuff like that. So to me, it was more of a challenge, a guy being shorter, but if you're a guy that threw 90 something, you had a better opportunity than, and, and I think it was that kid, Mike Leak that played for Cincinnati yep, and, and he's a, and he's a San Diego guy, kid. He he didn't he didn't like the radar gun up, but the kid knew how to pitch, and he was very successful. He was maybe nineties, low nineties, in the high eighties. 
but the guy knew how to pitch and he's still pitching today. Going through Tommy John's surgery, did it change your style of pitching, your delivery? I mean, because your mechanic-wise, you were you were you were damn good. No, no, I. You know what? I I got I was timid when I came back. So when I when I came back, I had all that scar tissue. I compensated for it. So when I came back, I went to I started in uh, low A ball to high A ball. I went to double A, and then I went to triple A, and. You know, I had a feeling they were going to call me up, but I couldn't. I got to AAA towards the end of the season. I couldn't I couldn't wipe my butt. I mean, my shoulder hurt so bad because I compensated for my elbow and I tore my rotator and my labrum. Well, I remember in, I, I remember in 87, you I was managing in Columbus and, and you yeah. were in Syracuse and you guys had some kind of rotation, man. We, we, we didn't like going there. You had yourself. Stottlemyre, Nunez, and who were the other two guys on that staff that were that just lit it up? I mean, they you guys had a really good staff. Dwayne Ward was there. So I think uh, Alex Sanchez, kid that signed out of UCLA. I think Alex Sanchez was there with us. We had some studs on that team. My mindset was that I almost quit baseball. And let me tell you something. If it wasn't for Larry Hardy, he was your bullpen coach, right? Yes, he was one of the nicest, greatest guys. As a matter of fact, I just got a text from him yesterday. One of the great guys. I mean, he was just a super coach. Right. Well, Larry Hardy, if it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have stayed in baseball. He used to give me videotapes, the beta, the beta max, back in the day of Steve Carlton and say, this is who you need to pitch like. I said, but Ron Guidry's my guy. He goes, no, this is who you need to pitch like. His mechanics were good. He was sound. And it was Steve Carlton. And, but he talked to me, he says, what are you going to go bang nails? What are you going to go flip burgers or who knows what else you're going to do? He goes, what would you rather do rehab and do that? And, you know, he, he pounded it into my brain and, and that's, he was a big reason why, why I stayed in the game after uh, the shoulder surgery. I just said, you know what, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And I pitched the same. I didn't alter anything. I went right back to the basics and my mechanics were always good and that's what i did and it worked one of the guys that was my great mentor as far as teaching me how to play infield was a guy named al monchak when i came up with the chicago white Sox. you know he he taught me positioning he taught me using my hands he taught me turn double play he just taught the game and uh he he was a guy that made me who i was as far as a defensive player and uh there's there seems to be always one guy that gets in your ear that uh just makes you the player that you are yeah and there's no doubt and that's what you need so like in in the 97 98 you know i was there willie randolph jose cardinal i mean you had two great infielders right there that knew the game you know lee mazzilli was there working with the outfielder i don't know if you had Derek and you know those guys in the minor leagues but to have guys like that jose cardinal you don't hear his name but he was a sound infielder yeah, well, he was with me with the Cardinals. He was over yeah. with uh, Joe Torre on uh, Cardinals staff uh, over there, and then uh, Joe brought him, you know, to the Yankees when uh, he took over and became the Yankee manager. But the knowledge of the game, I think, sometimes we we we're missing a little bit of that now with this new technology. Is is the old guys that could school you? You know, the old school guys. You know, guys like we're talking about. Those were the guys that were the knowledge of the game and gave you the way to play the game the right way. I think I could push back here a little bit, maybe on behalf of my generation. David, you played with some of those guys, you know, for so long. Some of the, I don't want to say new school necessarily, but some of the younger guys. I mean, don't you think that players like that, that guys who are playing right now, who looked up to them, that they're kind of getting a lot of that same stuff that maybe you got from a Cardinal? I mean, I, I know it's different because they're your peers as opposed to people who were you know, ahead of you in the game, but you have to imagine that some of these guys you played with are imparting that same kind of stuff to the people behind them, no? There's no doubt. I mean, when I was in Toronto, we had, uh, you know, Alex Gonzalez. The guy could play. He was a hell of a shortstop. And, you know, but prior to that, we had Tony Fernandez, you know, rest in peace. He was, you know, he just passed. He was an unbelievable, unbelievable shortstop. And then Manny Lee came in to fill his spot. You know, and then we had Alex Gonzalez, and then uh, I, 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 I miss. He was played in Miami for a bit, the shortstop, as well. He came along, you know. And so, to me, when you see these young guys, they were mentored by somebody who did it right, or they wouldn't have that position, you know. And to me, it's like, you know, as a veteran guy, 
my most important for me was that middle infielder. So I had Cal Ripken and I had Roberto Alomar. I had Derek Jeter. I had Knobloch and Soriano, Tony Fernandez, and then I had Roberto Alomar. So I've always had good up the middle guys because being a ground ball pitcher, that's important to have those shortstops like that and those second basements because as long as they had good range, it made a pitcher's day when you know that these guys can do it. And it doesn't hurt to have a Devon White or Bernie Williams or you know somebody in center field <laughs> that can run a ball down pretty simple without diving. So to me, th- those are the dynamics that people don't understand as a pitcher. When your mindset is you've got a defense behind you, put the damn ball in play, quit nibbling. You know, you, you mentioned uh, Tony Fernandez, obviously, and, and how sad that was. Obviously, you know, anytime you, I get to listen to, you know, some players from the past, you know, sharing stories, it always hits me how hard it must be anytime you lose one of those guys. And in addition to Tony, obviously, you know, we just lost Don Larson, David, I, I know the impact he had on you, you know, in your baseball career and kind of in the ways that you guys cross paths that way. I heard that you went to Idaho to give a a, a eulogy for him. And I'm just curious, how did you put those thoughts together and how did you try to sum up, you know, kind of the connection, the bond that you two shared? Well, it it wasn't easy and I'm a crier. So, you know, I, I, I'm an emotional guy. I, you know, I'll think about my mom, I'll start crying, you know, and you know, that to me, it's because, you know, you care about those people. They, they mean something to you in your life. And, you know, people express themselves differently than, than most. When you get the opportunity to pay your respects and do that, it, it, to me, it was, it was closure because of the fact that Don and I were pretty, pretty close. He'd come to San Diego all the time. We'd have him over for dinner. When you have people like that impacting your life, when I threw the perfect game, first call I got was Don Larson. I was like, holy mackerel, he went to my high school. You know, we went to the same high school. What are the odds of that? You know, but then to get to know somebody for for that long and, and get to talk baseball, it's pretty. His career wasn't the best, but he had he had some good games. But he had the knowledge of the game. And let me tell you something: when you sit there and talk baseball, that guy will talk all day long, and he has some of the best stories you'll ever hear. You know, he, he was just he was just that good. So to me, when you, when you have those type when you have those peers. You know, it's a great thing. But let me tell you something. It was a beautiful service, and I've never been to Idaho. And I was just like, wow. So I, I think I might be taking a trip every year to Idaho and just cruise Don's town, Hayden Lake. And, you know, I, I met a lot of people there on his side. That was pretty cool. And I, and I love it. But that's the kind of guy I am. I'll go back and say hello and grab some golf, get some, get some golfing in while I'm at it. What the hell? David, I'll take uh, take you back to a little bit more of a happier memory with Don. You know, for me, one of the great thrills I've had in my career is interviewing you, Don, and David Cohn together over dinner. You remember that thing. Hearing you guys talk about the relationship and all the fun that you guys have had, both you and David and you and Don and the three of you guys together in the time since you threw your perfect game and David Cohn threw his perfect game was even better than the baseball part for me. Can you talk a little bit what it's been like to have that relationship, not only with Don, but also with David Cohn and the bond that you guys have? And I know you guys, you know, have had some great times in San Diego and probably some that we can talk about and some that we can't. But, uh, you know, what's it been, what's it like, what was it always like when the three of you guys got together or, or obviously you and, and David? Cone. It was never a dull moment, quite a few hangovers, <laughs> but, uh, you know, just to sit there and, you know, and we can all elaborate on, you know, on our, on our own games. I mean, but the bottom line, it's pretty cool being, you know, Don, Dave and myself, the three D's, the only three guys that throw a perfect game. So we'd always just look at each other and kind of laugh because, you know, we're the only guys that did it. There's guys that came close. Mike Messina came close, but Carl Everett, he ruined that one for him. But, uh, you know, to me, it when when you have that relationship that we've had for so long, sit there and talk about it because there was only a couple guys who've ever been to all three, and Joe Torrey was one of them. You know, when, when Don, you know, he, he, he could take a room and it'll be silence because he, he knows how to run a room with a microphone. And you, you take notes on that. But he was more detailed because, you know, it, it was funny about Don's. He didn't even know he had a perfect game going. He didn't even know he had one until after it was over. That's, that's what's so unique about Don and how he did it. He didn't care. He didn't know. He just he knew he just he won the game. 
you know, and the guys had to tell me, you know, Don, you threw a perfect game. What? <laughs> that's a, that's a story in itself right there. That to me is, is awesome. And, you know, and with Dave, I was in Boston and I was on the bench. It was like the seventh inning, you know, and I'm, I'm with, I'm with Toronto and we're playing Boston. And one of the clubhouse kids came out and said, Coney's throwing a perfect game. So I went in and I watched it. And then let me tell you something. I was pitching the next day. I almost left. I was looking for a charter to fly to fly to New York to go party with Dave because he, he partied with me after mine. And, and I, and, but obviously that would have not have been the smartest move because I had to pitch the next day <laughs> and, and all that. But you know, you, you just, I, I miss my buddy Dave because he was there with mine. And you know, the night after mine was, was pretty epic, but you know, to me to try to do the same thing with him and, but, you know, to sit there with all three of us, talk about our games, brag about it. But at the end of the day, you can't brag anymore because we all did the same thing. So we're all <laughs> equal. And that, that was the funny part. Oh, mine was better. Mine was more intense. But then we just look at Dave and I would look and go, ours didn't. Ours weren't crap. Don did it in the World Series. He did it at the, the pinnacle and at the, the what everybody dreams about. Three, two, full count, World Series. I'm sure Bucky had a lot of those, you know, dreams as a kid. Oh yeah, in the backyard, being oh, Mickey yeah. Mantle, I sure did, man. And uh, but where? What about you in your perfect game? When when did you realize that you were throwing a perfect game? I know everybody's superstitious, you know, when guys are throwing yeah. a no hitter and stuff like that, and they don't want to say anything. But you know, take us through that 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 time as far as you you throwing your perfect game. When did you realize that you had a perfect game? Fourth inning, fourth inning. I went in to get a water in the lounge and I heard Michael Kay and John Sterling talking and Michael Kay says, David Wells has a perfect game going. And I'm like, la, 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 and I ran out. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to hear it. I just was trying to, cause I, I'm a superstitious dude. I mean, no doubt about it. 100% superstitious. And I was, I lived it to the T unless I was pissed off. But yeah, I got on the bench and I just tried to, I just tried to mind trick myself because I, now I knew what was going on and I just wanted to stay in the moment. And that's when I started feeling better about myself too, because the night before wasn't very smart. <laughs> a little Saturday night live action, a little party afterwards, and, you know, and, and stuff like that. But, you know, to me, it was just one of those things where I started feeling human because let me tell you something, that bullpen before the game was about as god awful as you could ever throw. I threw two balls out of the stadium that day, and Mel Stottlemyre's like, "Boomer, you're doing good." And I turn around, and I said, "Mel, don't patronize me. You know this is a crappy bullpen, and you know it." And me being still inebriated, I wasn't helping my cause. <laughs> so uh, that's how that's how stupid I was fighting Mel Stottlemyre. You know, tell him that I suck and all that, and he's just he was doing his job. You know, hey, Boomer, you all right? Just relax. We're going to be fine. And it ended up being that way. But that fourth inning, when I heard that, I was like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Let's go. Get out. Go. Do do your thing. And I got there until the eighth inning when David Cohn finally came up and started talking to me. Because nobody would talk to me. I went sat. I think I remember going sitting down between Brocious and Tino. And they both got up and walked away. It's like I walked down the dugout and people would just move. It was like parting <laughs> the red sea, just get out of my, get, they just got out of my way. And it was, it's an eerie feeling when you're there by yourself and nobody talks to you. Then Coney comes up and says, Hey, why don't you, why don't you break out your knuckleball? And I just looked at said, <laughs> I said, what'd you say? say? And he goes, throw your knuckleball. And I said, dude, I don't throw a knuckleball. He goes, yeah, you do. We play catch every day. You got a great knuckleball. He goes, break it out. I'm like, are you out of your mind? Do you know, you understand what's going on? He goes, so what? Just throw it anyway. And I'm like, and I'm sitting there and I'm kind of getting in a little argument with them. And I'm like, dude, I'm not throwing a freaking knuckleball. But I knew what he was doing. He was trying to get my mind off the pressure that was building, you know, because the fans got me more nervous than anything because you get your two strikes. They want the strikeout. So what do you want? You want the strikeout. And that's basically how it went. It was back and forth. And I was just like, if I had a microphone on the mound, I'd tell everybody to sit on and shut up. Because I was making me nervous, and now you don't want to make a mistake. But you know what? All I did was zero in on Jorge's glove. I didn't care who was hitting, who was at bat. 
any whatever the situation was, I'm just throwing I'm just throwing the ball to the glove. That's all I wanted to do was hit my spot. And you know, and I, I remember the Paul Molitor at bat, and the pitch before the two two pitch was right there. And I'm like, oh my god! And Tim McClellan's like ball, and I'm like ball. This guy should be struck out looking. And I'm like, oh boy, three two. I threw the same pitch, three two sinker, you know, fastball sinker, and he swung, and it and it. I mean, it dropped, and he he swung right over it. You know, besides that, the line drive that that went to Knobloch. Now that was a tester because he had the yips. So he, yep. he, he had the, uh, you know, he had the Steve Sack syndrome, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mackie Sasson syndrome. And I were like, oh boy, is he going to make, is he going to make the throw or what? And he threw perfect strike, right? To Tino. So, you know, to me, that those, those were the t- only two things in the game that really, really were to me a big deal in it. And then besides Coney talking crap to me, <laughs> that was, you know, that was, that was the whole thing, but it was great. I mean, you know, to me, to be able to tell those stories is pretty cool because I just wanted to keep the team in the ball game because I knew if I came out in the first three innings, I'm going to get suspended and fined. <laughs> you know, David, uh, about three months later against the A's, you took a perfect game into the seventh. When you're doing that so close on the heels of a perfect game, is that in your mind? Like, you know, is it easier that time? Is it different that time? How does it go? Well, I, I think it was the Giambi at bat. He hit a he hit a fly ball to yep. to Derek, and Derek lost it. So I, I remember Derek underneath it, and he lost it, and it and it dropped. And I was just like, I put my like David Cohen. He dropped to his knees and put his hand on his head, like, oh my god, I just threw a perfect game. I just, I kind of did that. I'm like, oh my God, what just happened? And that's all I did. <laughs> and and that's all I did. I didn't show him up. I didn't do it. I'm just like, okay, whatever. No big deal. It happened. I got the applause and, and all that. We end up winning the game, but the media blew that so bad out of proportion. And they went to Derek and said, I showed him up. And then Derek came and got my face and, you know, and I'm like, Derek, it wasn't like that. I said, dude, you're, 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 you're hitting it totally wrong. I'd never show you up. I said, you bailed me out more than, than anything. Why would I want to show you up? Because to me, if a guy made an uh, error behind me, I'd turn around and say, hey, I got you. I got you. I'll get you a ground ball. Let's, let's turn two now. That's just the kind of guy I was. I, I, didn't, I would never show anybody up unless it was the other guy popping off on the other team. That's the only one I would show up. But my teammates, never. I never knew that part of the story. That's interesting. Yeah, it was it was it was nuts. That's a part of the game back in when I played, man. You didn't you didn't show anybody up, man. You didn't see guys flipping bats and you know doing all this jumping up and down and stuff like that when they hit a home run because you know the next time up you would you know be separated from your helmet. So I mean they didn't they didn't do that kind of stuff you know like that back back then. But with what's going on today, David, with the season, you know, with guys not knowing you know when the season might start back. If they were to start in July, what would you be doing now to prepare yourself to get ready? Would you be just relaxing and then wait till you got a time to, to start gearing up? Or what would you be doing? Well, obviously, you'd have to be throwing unless you found somebody that you trust that has been quarantined <laughs> and then all that. You can go, you know, you can go to a park and play catch and just keep your, your, your long toss in. You know, with the money these guys are making, I, I'm, I sure hope everybody has a bullpen in their backyard <laughs> or something. Mm-hmm. But they can go somewhere and 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 try to keep up the, uh, you know, keep their because I'm obviously they're going to have to have a, you know, a, a mini uh, spring training before they do that because of the fact that you got to hit the live, got to throw the live hitters, you got to get those reps in. I hated to go on rehab assignments. I would get pissed if I had to go. I would try to avoid them because I knew what I was able to do. I was just a freak. So I, I could throw strikes. So I didn't really need to go down and face hitters because I knew how to throw the ball in and out and up and down. But I could hit my mm-hmm. spots. I could hit a Nats ass at 60 feet, 6 inches, 7 out of 10 times. You know. Right. So to me, it, it's, it's about just staying in your conditioning because my thing is, as a pitcher, when your legs go, you're done. So you got to somehow keep yourself in condition, you know, <laughs> to be honest with you, Bucky, if it was me back when I was playing, I wouldn't be doing crap. 
I just can't go. <laughs> you know, I, I piss everybody off. <laughs> well, you know, truly, I mean, you know, like in 81, you know, when we had to strike in 81, and we came back, I think they only gave us like 10 or 10 days or two weeks to get ready. And uh, we were ready to go. I mean, we started the, the first game after the All-Star game, and, you know, we only played like 107 games. But it didn't take us long to get ready. No, and, 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 and guys know how to get ready, especially pitchers. They know how to get ready. You know, some guys you might need to hold their hand a little bit. But I, I would think as, as a position player, it would be a little tougher because of the fact that even though you know what to get ready, when you're not seeing the ball out of a pitcher's hand, the timing, you know, it would be, it would be tough for some guys. The veteran guys would probably understand it more and get it. So, like I said, you know, to me, you know, some guys would need some a little extra time. Other guys go right in, and and it wouldn't be a problem to them because they, you know they're prepared mentally. If you're prepared, you know what to do. It's like riding a bike. I hear you, man. Well, listen, you have been awesome. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, and uh, you know you're my first guest, and we just love this time we've had with you, and you know you're one of my favorites, and uh, I just want to thank you for for being on today. Oh, my pleasure, Bucky. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and hanging out. It's, uh, you know, it's never a dull moment. We always have something to say, so that's a good thing. <laughs> that's what we love about both of you guys. <laughs> that is true. Thank Al. you. Thank you all so much for listening today. David, thank you for joining us. Bucky, thanks as always. We'll be back with you in two weeks with the next episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. In the meantime, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to help us out here wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Yanks Magazine, and we will speak to you soon. Have a good one, everyone. Please be safe. Please stay away from other people. We'll get through this all together, okay? Have fun. Bye now. Hey, this is Giancarlo Stan. If you like what you're hearing, why don't you rate and review us? And while you're at it, tell your friends to subscribe. Thanks so much, and go Yankees. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.